following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Okay, today's sermon is called, What Do We Say? And it is based on one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible, called the story of the prodigal son. This is one of the few stories in the Bible that is known by a particular title that has obtained a secular meaning, that is, a a meaning outside of any religious or church context. Um, Even if you don't know anything about the Bible, I can almost guarantee that you have heard the phrase prodigal son before, and you have some idea that what it means is it's it's referring to a person who has gone astray and then who has come back home um, in some level of shame to be uh, accepted back into his former life or her former life. And uh, this is one of those things that everybody has, has heard of to some degree. And I think, in fact, that it's likely that um, absent a dictionary, most of us would assume from context clues, remember context clues from school, that the word prodigal, in fact, means um, something like returning, or maybe sorry, or maybe ashamed, right? Because in the context of the story, uh, which we'll get to in a minute, all of those things could be meanings for, that would, word, or words that would describe this son, right? But as a matter of fact, the word prodigal means none of those things. It doesn't mean anything like any of those things. The word prodigal, you may be interested to know, means lavish, as in this Boy, this man was a lavish sinner. Right? Prodigal, uh, it has some of the same letters in it as prodigious, which is an awesome word nerd word, isn't it? He was a prodigious sinner. A prodigal son. He sinned lavishly. And he's a character in a story that Jesus tells, um, much like that other eponymous hero Uh, from the Bible known as the Good Samaritan, who's also a character in one of Jesus' stories. And the type of story that this is, the return of the prodigal son, is a a parable, which are stories that are intended to explain a spiritual truth by saying that this thing is like this other thing, right? And here we go again, word nerds. Parable um, is a parabola, right? This thing is like this other thing. There's a parabolic connection between these two ideas. And usually, um, when Jesus tells a parabolic story, he does so in response to somebody's question, right? Jesus, much like your grandpa, doesn't like to answer questions directly. (laughs) He prefers to answer questions with questions or with stories that may or may not have any immediate (laughs) meaning to you when you hear them, right? But which, when you think about them, are incredibly profound. So let's read this story. This is from Luke chapter 15, which uh, is on page 850 in the Red Bibles. If you'd like to follow along, you can. I encourage you maybe slightly more than usual to follow along this time because what's going to happen is I'm going to read through this story uh, and I'm going to pause three times. And each time I pause, it's going to be to reflect on a statement that has just been made in the passage. And the purpose of reflecting on the statement will be to ask the question, how, how does anybody say this today? Or is this statement made of anybody in our context? 
Hence the title of the sermon, What Do We Say? So let's dive in. Luke 15, verse 1. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, him being Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. Okay, so we're only two verses in, and already we have our first pause. This uh, statement by the Pharisees, this criticism, is really the key to the whole story. This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them, they say. That's the statement that I want to pause and reflect on. It's a remarkable statement to make about a Jewish teacher that he welcomes sinners and particularly that he eats with them. Because keep in mind that a big part of uh, Jewish observance, especially in the first century uh, as compared to now, involves the foods that you eat and it involves keeping that which is pure separate from that which is impure. That which is clean separate from that which is unclean. And this is the the entire concept of holiness. Holy just means set apart. So we're going to make one thing that's holy be set apart and separate from something else. Surely if Jesus were a good rabbi, you can imagine the Pharisees saying, he would be calling on these sinners not for dinner, but to ask them to repent of their sin. Or maybe better yet, to tell them that they actually can't be part of the community because they are sinners. After all, the Pharisees might say, doesn't doesn't it say in the Bible that you have to love the sinner but hate the sin? This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's the statement. And here's the question that it inspires. Does anybody say that about us? Does anybody say that about you? When's the last time you heard somebody say, Ooh, artisan church, I hear they welcome sinners. When's the last time somebody said of you, can you believe who she invited over for dinner? Here's the thing. I think that if we are doing the work of Jesus, if we are following in his footsteps, if we are carrying on his work, that people ought to be saying that kind of thing about us. Because it would mean that we're keeping the kind of company that makes religious people a little bit anxious. And I think that if nobody ever says that about our church or about us as individuals, that probably indicates a failure on our part. Probably indicates that the grace we are offering is not lavish enough. It's not prodigious enough. (laughs) That our grace is not prodigal grace. So that's the first pause in the story. Now let's read on, and I promise to go a little bit further into the text before I make my next pause. Verse 3, in response to this question, says he told them this parable. Now, there's a jump here that happens in the lectionary text, and the reason is that he actually tells them three parables. There's two parables that are in between here that are omitted, which are interesting, but which we are not going to cover today. Let's jump to verse 11, halfway through there, where he begins the parable of the prodigal son. There was a man who had two sons. 
the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. Dissolute means morally lax. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to the fields to feed the pigs. Now remember, pigs are unclean, impure, unholy. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am, dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. So here's the second pause in the story. After the statement, I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Here again we have a very dramatic statement. It's very stark, isn't it? There is not a great deal of nuance in this statement. I have sinned. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I pause on that statement because it inspires me to ask a similar question, which is this. Do I ever say anything like that about myself? Do we ever say anything like that about ourselves? Oh, sure, we confess. We confess every week in church. We pray the prayer that's on the screen. Sometimes I give you a chance and you think about your own sins a little bit. I do the same thing. Do we ever say anything that stark? I have sinned. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. No longer worthy to be called your daughter. Earlier I mentioned that axiom, love the sinner and hate the sin. Does anybody know which book of the Bible that's from? It's not in the Bible. Somebody made that up. In fact, um, as Tony Campolo has so uh, poignantly observed, and you can find him talking about this on YouTube, uh, what's in the Bible is something entirely different. The first part is correct. We are supposed to love the sinner. But we love the sinner and we hate our own sin. That's what Campolo says. And he's referring to that moment when Jesus says, Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? See, we're not called to hate anybody else's sin except our own. When somebody says, we're all sinners, but... Don't say but. You're supposed to love the sinner, but... 
No. Don't say but. Love the sinner and hate your own sin. Now, we have a hard enough time with the first part of that. And we're really terrible at the second part. See, we don't, we like a little bit of nuance when we start to confess our sins. We like to say, not, I have sinned, I'm no longer worthy to call for your son. We'd rather say, I have sinned a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Or we say, I have sinned in this way. Thank God I don't struggle with that one. Or we say, at least I'm not like my brother. Have you met that guy? I don't have a brother. If I did, I'd be better than him. (laughs) Here is an amazing possibility within the church. Do a thought experiment with me and think about a church that acts like Jesus instructs us to act and that follows the model that he gives us for how to treat people. Imagine, if you will, a church full of people who love the worst kind of sinners that welcomes them and eats with them so much that the rest of the religious community goes, ugh. Imagine that. And that same church hates their own sin so much that they're in a constant state of confession and repentance and refining and getting closer and closer to God's holiness. Could you imagine the power that's in that combination? Where we have... 100% grace for everybody around us and yet submit ourselves and remind ourselves that we need that grace just as much as they do. Because unfortunately what you get in the church is you get one or the other of those things and a distortion in either case. But we're called to be both of those things. But if we want to get there, we have to be willing to say, as the prodigal son said, I have hit bottom. (laughs) Because here's the thing, if you never say, I have sinned, I'm no longer worthy, if you never get to the place of confessing that way, then the most gracious and forgiving father in the whole world will be inaccessible to you. Recall how that's the last part of the passage that we read ended. The son had confessed his sin and had begun to make his way home. Now the father was looking out for him. See on the portals, he's waiting and watching, right? Like the hymn sang earlier. And he sees him far off and he runs out to meet him and he embraces him and kisses him. Notice how desperately he wants the son to return. He's waiting for him. How dramatic their reunion is. Without the Father's love and forgiveness, the story would be empty. It is surely the point of the parable. But, without the Son's sorry movement toward home, the forgiveness would not have been activated, if you will. There would be no way for Him to receive it because there would have been no reunion. So again I ask, Do we ever make that same statement that the son made? Have you ever said in your whole life or recently, I've sinned, I am not worthy to be called a son or a daughter of God? You might say, have you made your own sorry movement toward home? Ponder that for a minute. And let's read on, picking up in verse 21. 
where the son says the thing that he had resolved to say to his father. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. And get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen. All these years I've been working like a slave for you and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Now the third and final pause. The last statement that I want to think about together with you today. It's a longish one compared to the others, but it could be summarized like this. He says, for all these years, I've been working like a slave for you. Can you hear the tone of voice, this seething jealousy, this diatribe against the father, the refusal to go into the party if he's going to be there? And notice the movement through this, this point in the story. It starts out being about the younger brother, right? And the older brother is right. It must be said that the younger son did not deserve this banquet. He had no business being celebrated after what he'd done. It starts out being about him. But very quickly, it shifts to become about the older brother, doesn't it? And his petulant complaint that, He's never had a party thrown for him. And he's been good the whole time. How many of you are the, uh, the good older sibling? <laughs> that is me. <laughs> Have you ever said anything like that to your parents? Uh, even if it's not within your own family of origin, maybe you've said something like this to God. You, you wouldn't say it quite as starkly, probably, but we all have our little complaints with, uh, with God's grace, don't we? How could you let him in? How could she possibly be so successful after what she's done? Why hasn't my family been blessed like that family? And we begin to see what it's really about. It's not about the younger brother. It's not even about the older brother. It's about the father and his apparently bottomless grace. And it's about the fact that when it comes down to it, we really don't want God to be such a loving father. We want a God who is exactly gracious enough to let us in to the banquet and not a bit more. 
What a coincidence that the cutoff point for grace is precisely the amount of sin that I have in my own life. Which, by the way, is what the Pharisees wanted too. And that's the whole reason Jesus ended up telling this particular story. Because they had accused him of spending too much time with sinners, of welcoming them, of eating with them. They wanted a God that was only gracious enough to allow them in. But that's not what God is like. God is like the Father in this story that Jesus tells who welcomes any who would return to him with a banquet. See, much to our dismay, sometimes, we don't get to decide who God lets into God's kingdom. We don't get to exclude anybody from the feast. And that's probably a good thing, by the way, because as soon as we finished making our little fence around our little table, we would turn around and realize that somebody had made a fence around their table and we wouldn't be able to get to that one. And for the people in the room who might be thinking to yourselves, well, okay, we should allow sinners, like Jesus said, but they have to repent. They better confess and stop sinning. Okay, fair enough. But that is none of your business. That is between the prodigal son or daughter and the good, good father. And your job is to sit at the table that he's laid out for you both. So as we conclude... I want to present to you this banquet feast that God has prepared. This feast is here and he is offering it to us all. When you look at the table of communion today, realize, as always, that the feast is the body and blood of Jesus himself, that he is offering himself for you in sacrifice. But I'd also like you to imagine it if you will, that this table is the feast that is laid out by the father of these two sons. It may be that um, some of you in the room are the prodigious, uh, prodigious sinners, the prodigals. Right? And this story inspires you to say, you know what? If God is that gracious, then I can go home. And I will. It's very likely that there's many of you in the room who um, you're the son or daughter who's been slaving away your whole life. You've been the good one. And you're frankly a little bit irritated that the table would be laid so richly for those who have not done their part. I want us to realize that at this table... We are all the same. We are all the same sons and daughters of God. And so hear the final words of this father, which he speaks to his son about both of them. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours, notice that the son had called him that son of yours. The father says, this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. So let us all go into the feast together. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.